traveled far to be here. Welcome to Indiana. Um, as a preliminary matter, we have a lot of, we have the federal court interns, we have the interns from the Civil Rights Commission, we have summer associates from some law firms, and we've got law students from IU, so welcome to all our visitors today as well. So we're here this morning to hear argument in the case of State of Indiana Appellant versus Tyson Timms Appellee. The State of Indiana will argue first. This is a civil transfer case on remand from the Supreme Court of the United States. Representing Mr. Timms at council table, we have Sam Gedge, uh, Wesley Hoddit, welcome, um, Scott Milkey, welcome, gentlemen. Representing the state of Indiana at council table, we have Thomas, Mr. Fisher, and Kyan Hudson. Welcome, General Fisher and Mr. Hudson. Are the parties ready to proceed? All right, General Fisher. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. While we now know that the excessive fines clause applies uh, to uh, state in rem forfeitures, what we don't know is what the measuring stick is to be used for, uh, for in rem forfeitures. For a while, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that a gross disproportionality test applies in the in, pers in personam context. It has not said that that test applies in the in rem context. Uh, so this is a very important case for deciding, is this going to be a case about uh, proportionality and gross disproportionality, or is the test instead, as the state advances, uh, whether the uh, forfeited property is instead an instrumentality of the crime? Before you get too far into the merits, would you address the argument from uh, Mr. Timms that the state has waived uh, the in-rem uh, argument here? Well, Your Honor, I think this case has developed over time. Uh, this case is not the same case it was when it first came out of the trial court. Uh, we've been uh, through a couple of rounds of briefing that have shed light on the historical sources of in-rem forfeitures. Uh, we have, in, in the U.S. Supreme Court, engaged on these issues. Uh, I don't think there's much uh, to be gained from sticking to a technical waiver uh, position here. I think well, there's plenty for him to be gained. I'm sorry, there's... There's plenty for Mr. Tim's to be gained. Oh, well, I just, I mean, in terms of, of the d use of judicial resources to address this issue, I mean, uh, Mr. Timms, has been, his lawyers are well aware of all of these arguments. Uh, there can't be any secret to the state's position on these matters after the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this court invited amicus briefing, and there was an amicus brief uh, supporting Mr. Timms that goes into some measure of historical analysis. So the state, you've, you've done a complete 180 then from the state's position that was argued here two years ago that in an in-rem forfeiture, an excessive uh, proportionality analysis would apply. Well, I wouldn't describe it as a 180. I just think it's a, it is an additional argument. Uh, okay, so you agree with the fact that had Mr. Timms been driving a more expensive car, such as Council for the States did the last time, that it could be a constitutional violation? Yeah, no, I don't think we, we, we'd stick to that So position. that would be a 180. Right, right. That, well, that's a 180. Fair point. And, okay, so and, why, back to Justice Slaughter's question, yeah. would there not be a potential for waiver that you're making a new argument? I don't think it does any prejudice to Mr. Timms. I mean, the... the, the well, uh, it does do. I mean, if he, I mean, the state's argument is if he was driving a more expensive car, he would have constitutional protection. But given that he was driving the only automobile he had, really the only piece of property on this earth that he had, he did not get that constitutional protection. 
The only real piece of property that Mr. Timms had, it's in the briefing and the record, this was his, his biggest asset. Well, I don't think it's in, in the record. It's certainly in the briefing, but I don't think it's in the record. Uh, but in any event, this is the position that we've staked out already in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, when I was asked by Justice Breyer whether a Bugatti could be forfeited for going five miles an hour over the speed limit. And historically, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, and we're, we're sticking with that, uh, that position here. And I don't think it does uh, any injustice to Mr. Timms to evaluate the Land Rover based on the incident, the instrumentality test versus uh, the proportionality test. Now, even if the court were to look at the proportionality test, again, we're t talking about the same, the same vehicle, not something more expensive. So I don't think that the position that we took last time as to whether a more expensive vehicle would somehow be disproportionate has any bearing here. Um, so, but I think it's, it's, it's critical to, to think about uh, instrumentalities uh, in part because uh, what we do with in-rem today is not materially different from what historically has happened with in-rem forfeitures. Uh, we're talking about a division in the law that has existed for hundreds of years. Uh, we're talking about uh, really, uh, although the, we, we, we hear some, some concern from the other side about abuse of in-rem forfeiture, we're not talking about anything that is fundamentally different. Uh, we're talking about uh, where the state uh, targets the, the property that is used in a criminal enterprise uh, as an instrumentality of the criminal enterprise. Counsel, is instrumentality a binary choice? Yes, it's an in instrumentality. No, it's not. Or the degrees um, along a continuum by which we make that judgment? Well, no, I think, I think it ultimately ends up being binary. And I think that's in part because the instrumentality uh, issue is built into the statute. We're, we, I don't think we look at instrumentality as a constitutional matter any differently from the way the statute describes use of the property. What about Justice Scalia when he talked about an isolated drug sale in, a, in an abandoned building it may not yeah. be that, or that building may not be an instrumentality? Yeah. Well, that could be. I mean, I think, I think every case there, are, there can well, be factual. in this case, if the evidence shows that the predicate offense was one-time sale and he drove the car five minutes to the sale, there's no type of range or scope to how often that was used, and why isn't that more like what Justice Scalia talked about, the um, isolated single drug sale um, in a house would mean that the house would not necessarily be an instrumentality of the crime. Well, first of all, those aren't the facts of this case. With the, the evidence shows that Mr. Timms drove the Land Rover probably okay. dozens so, of times. What is the state's obligation for the predicate offense? In the, in the petition for forfeiture, it yeah. had one offense. Right. Didn't, it actually was very general. It didn't specify which offense it was looking at. And I think that's typical, at least my understanding, for you know, a, a, a notice But there's no pleading. information with regard to the dealing drugs that it was used any more than one time. Well, what we have, but what we have at the hearing is testimony from Mr. Timms acknowledging that he drove his rover from Marion to Richmond to spend over $30,000 on heroin. The, the, the rover was an instrumentality of each of those crimes. But does that go into the test? I mean, so when you look at how often, there's no, there's the, the, the trial court in this case made numerous findings. The state has no objections to those findings, correct? Well, other than the, just than the proportionality. No, he, he didn't like how they applied them to the constitutional yeah, standard, right. but there's no objections right. to that. Um, and there is no information with regard to the drug dealing charge that there was any more than one down the road driving of this car. There is information that the trial court used that he was um, using it to feed his habit. Well, yes, but those are crimes. Those are the, for which the rover is an instrumentality. I don't think there's any doubt. Indeed, the trial court said. So, that. if it's game over, no matter no matter what extent that you're using it, if you use your car for drugs, there's no analysis to any degree of it was used for instrumentality. I, I get it if he was if you used um, drug proceeds to buy your car, and that's not an issue in this right. case, correct? 
But if it's over, um, if you can show its instrumentality, there is no other evaluation done, and there's no really question if it's used any part for instrumentality, what's to be done? Like, let's, let's talk about some of the hypotheticals. Yeah. Uh, let's say that he had taken um, a statute that, if he drove his car, um, or he, he sold the car to someone, Okay, he was using the car to deal drugs, and he sold the car to someone. Under your evaluation, the car can be forfeited. Right. There are. What about a common carrier? What if he takes a bus? No, I don't think. I don't think in that circumstance. Where, where would you find the exceptions? Well, first of all, uh, I think there's a, a built into the statute are innocent owner exceptions. Now, I think that's also something I want to mention was part of the historical treatment of interim forfeitures. But beyond that, I think all we're really talking about here is a, a, an issue about how you draw the line for instrumentality, which may be challenging, but which has already been done in this case. This court has already said. Well, let me, let me just one, let me yeah. ask one question um, on instrumentality so you can go on to somewhere else. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about whatever we decide, how it's applied going forward. And, and as I understand the state's position with respect to instrumentality, very simple, hypothetical. Vehicle, um, single parent, custody of five children, working, driving my kids around, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, one drug transaction, one drug transaction using that vehicle versus I'm a dealer by any definition. I deal four or five transactions a day. I use that vehicle. Um, that's my only vehicle I use. As I understand it, your position on instrumentality is doesn't make a difference. The two hypotheticals doesn't make a difference as far as instrumentality. Well, constitutionally, those two fact patterns are, are perhaps indistinguishable, except that what I would say is that the whether the property is an instrumentality is first and foremost a statutory issue. This court has shown its willingness to engage on that issue in the Serrano case and the Katner case. Those, are, those can be challenging issues. There are plenty of historical precedents with instruction about how courts can deal with those challenging issues. That issue is in fact not present here, at least because this court has already decided the rover was an instrumentality for all these crimes. Now, once we cross that threshold, there is no additional excessive fines clause analysis to be done. If it's an instrumentality, historically, it was subject to forfeiture. Uh, and that's your, your opponent um, raises the uh, 97 Chevrolet case from the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which looks first at the question whether there's an instrumentality. Yeah. And only if there is does it get to the next question of proportionality. I guess my question is, what's wrong in your view with the way the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has addressed this question? Well, there's no historic, for constitutional purposes, there's no historical grounding for that analysis. Uh, governments have been forfeiting property for hundreds of years, but until about 25 years ago, no court suggested that there was a proportionality limitation. Uh, that is a purely modern device, uh, and what matters is, is the instrumentality issue. Uh, so I think, you know, that there are definitely courts that have, have said other things about this, but I think if we're going to look at the historical roots of, of in-rem forfeitures uh, and use that as a guide, as I, as I think we should, as I think is required constitutionally uh, speaking, then we have to take uh, take into account all those hundreds of years, all those harsh forfeitures, all those forfeited uh, vehicles and wagons and horses and boats and ships. Mr. Fisher, let's say we disagree with you and, and we think that we, um, we must assess a proportionality test here. What, what factors beyond what Judge Todd considered uh, should we 
ask trial courts to consider when they're determining questions of proportionality in this context. And I, I hope you'll get to whether or not we should consider some type of economic factor, because uh, some of the sources that were cited by the Supreme Court would suggest that this is something that weighs uh, heavy uh, on, on their mind. In terms of hardship to the to the owner of the to property? The, to the person who's actually, yes, who's, whose yeah. property is, is, is forfeited. Well, look, I don't think that is an appropriate inquiry, but that is also as a matter of historical practice. I don't think there are historical roots for taking into account personal hardship when it comes to in-rem forfeitures. Now, if we are going beyond what the historical record tells us and instructs us, then you know <laughs> there can be any number of, of other possibilities. I would, I would uh, point out, however, that the record here is silent as to the economic impact. Um, we have some suppositions, we have some, some assertions uh, post-trial uh, court, but there's nothing in the trial court record that says anything about Mr. Timms. What we know is that he inherited $70,000, spent $40,000 on a rover, and spent the other 30 on heroin. Uh, and beyond that, we don't know anything about hardship. Now, I think what we have to bear in mind in terms of what the trial court missed out was it is also relevant to look at not only the dealing charge for which he pled guilty and the, and the attempted theft charge for which he pled guilty, but also all of the, the possession and transportation crimes that he admitted to on the stand. Those are all relevant to uh, whether this is an appropriate forfeiture, including whether, you know, when we're looking at this as a matter of proportionality. $30,000, he admitted, spending on heroin. Uh, that's a lot of heroin. Now, we punish that very severely, at least we, by, by virtue of our, of our uh, sentencing laws. He could have gotten 20 years for the dealing charge alone. Um, this court has, has staked out, I think, a, a fairly um, clear position that gross disproportionality in the sentencing context uh, means that it's got to be extreme. It has got to be you know, very excessive. The, uh, this court in uh, what the Hawkins case said that 20 years for delivering heroin was neither barbaric nor excessive in relation to the crime. Well, if 20 years is not excessive, I don't see how a $40,000 Land Rover is. Who wouldn't trade a $40,000 Land Rover for 20 years? Um, so I think we're well within the range of reasonableness and the range of proportionality, whether you look at the Indiana statutes, whether you look at uh, other statutes around the country, the federal uh, level, this would have been, under the sentencing guidelines, been a $55,000 fine uh, in 10 to 37 months. Counsel, are you troubled by the um, implicit holding in the Court of Appeals a couple of years ago that um, that if all the facts were the same, but he was driving a 20-year-old Oldsmobile, uh, the forfeiture would be fine. But because it's a nicer car, um, it's unconstitutional. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it would be good for the court to uh, avoid a legal standard that would encourage uh, people to drive their fancy cars to drug deals. Uh, I think it would be better to have a uniform treatment of automobiles uh, and uh, to look, and that's one of the reasons the instrumentality test uh, is, is useful. It, it is not a test that is designed to discriminate uh, based on the, the type of property involved. It's designed to get at the property that is, as you know, tradition would have it, is the guilty property and get it out of the criminal enterprise. Uh, it is, you know, about abating public nuisances. It's about, you know, getting, uh, if, you know, if we're not, uh, on one hand, we may be concerned about the criminal, on the other hand, we're also concerned about the property used to commit the crime. Uh, so I think, you know, there's, there's a number of factors that, uh, that the court can consider uh, in that regard, and instrumentality is the easiest way to prevent that from happening. Going back to Justice Goff's question, mm -hmm. I mean, you would agree that the excessive fine clause derives from the English Bill of Rights. Sure. Correct? And there's a provision in that that really is the government shouldn't deprive a person of his livelihood. Mm -hmm. Would you agree if we don't, if we don't follow your, rec your recommendation 
that it that we're just going to stick to in rem and instrumentality tests and we do an excessive analysis yeah. what would be your arguments against looking at that excessiveness being measured one of the factors does it deprive a person of his livelihood would you be in agreement if we got to the excessive analysis that that be done on forfeiture no you're looking at history and if you're going to look at history you have to look at all of the history and the history is that that was not something that applied in the interim context. What was going on there was a concern about not fining individuals for petty crimes such that they couldn't pay the fines and then would be in debtor's prison. That's what the excessive fines clause is really about. And with in-rem, we're nowhere near that. What we're talking about here is one piece of property. If there's a default, there, nobody goes to jail. All that's done is the property's given up. Do you, do you make the, the argument that this is not punitive, that the forfeiture of Mr. Tim's car is not a punitive response? Well, I don't, look, I think that's a loaded term. Now, I look at it and I say, you know, in-rem forfeitures historically have been about many, many things. Uh, you know, if punishment is one of them, it's, all, it's only one of many. It's more about abating the nuisance. It's about uh, getting the property away from, from the development of the criminal enterprise. We look at, for example, Austin, however. Austin says that in-rem forfeitures are, are uh, punishment and therefore are subject to the excessive fines clause. I think history's intention with that point uh, and I don't think that uh, it is, in any event, uh, instructive to use the word punishment to try to figure out how to apply either the instrumentality or the, or the proportionality test. So where's the limits? And you were asked this question before, and I'm going to see if your answer is the same. Mm. So the, the, the legislature, the state decides that if you're speeding, if you're going over X amount of miles per hour, we can take your car. Is there any limits to... The, that governmental power. <laughs> is it now, a Bugatti? It yes. I mean, there is no limit. I, I don't, it's, it's, I, I'm not even going to use that. We're not going to use that car anymore here. Uh, We're here fine. in Indiana. No, I don't um, think. I, I, look, I, I've gone out on a limb on the Bugatti. I don't think I'm going to come back. Uh, so, uh, so, so there is no limits. No. There's not no a, limits. not, not so if we're doing you, the instrumentality. Okay. If we're doing proportionality, then, then yes, there could be, theoretically. But I think that's a matter of a multi-factor test. But here, we don't have to figure out where those outer limits are because we're so well within um, what you know the, this court has been willing to recognize, especially when we compare to criminal sentencing. Uh, there's just no no question that this is. Uh, and the numbers know. are big. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars of revenue in our country right now with regard to forfeitures, correct? Well, maybe, but not with respect to Mr. Tim's. I mean, it's not any right. one person. So, but we're also but, you know, the underlying issue. We're you know, what is the power of the government with regard to seizing property, yeah. um, and what are the checks on that? Yeah. So, when I ask you that if there was a law saying that you could take your car if you're speeding, and it was the instrumentality of speeding, it's game over. Yeah. Um, what are the checks? I mean, what when we look at in rem and in personam. They're, they're, they're getting closer together than the cases. Um, well, that, that you, you may not agree, but yeah. I, there's a lot that have come out of the U.S. Supreme Court that the talking about these cases, the line's not as clear as what you would like to have us maintain today. Right. And I think you kind of pushed that point, too, and didn't quite get the answer. Like, should we go to, you know, you would like to see us overrule Austin or have <laughs> SCOTUS overrule Austin, that you didn't get that done. We've got yeah. Austin. It's yeah. there. Yeah. So Austin is there. We have to treat in rem under the excessive fines, but there's no statement about, about the test. Now, at, with respect to the, the resolution of the speeding forfeiture of the, of the speeding car, I don't think the people of Indiana would probably stand for that. And I think they would probably write their legislators and prompt a legislative response. Uh, and that's why we don't have those cases. Uh, on the other hand, we do have forfeitures for uh, potentially third offense drunk driving, which, you know, I think people would stand for. Uh, that's to get the instrumentality out of the hands of the offender. Um, so, you know, it, the, the Austin question, you know, is it, it's still there. There's no, there's no uh, overturning of Austin. This can't, court cannot do anything about that. But that doesn't answer the question about how we do 
excessive fines analysis on instrumentalities. Well, that's uh, that's what concerns me. Is that yeah. I, th I think this is a, a moment where the, the the world has changed, and there's a dearth of authority uh, in this area. So we've got this case, this particular case now, and in this position that you're taking, I'm I'm concerned. I'm very concerned that that's not a, a, a position that, 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 will, that will stand. I think that there, the, the, this binary approach to in rem versus in personam mm -hmm. is, is not a wise course for us to take because I, I don't think that it will withstand uh, scrutiny. And so that, that's, that's what I'm concerned mm -hmm. about is when we have um, a, a person in the position of Mr. Timms mm -hmm. and, and the evidence before the trial court was that this vehicle was used mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in obtaining drugs over a period of time, he considered all of that and, and he decided that this was excessive. I, I, I really, I, we, when we're looking at whether we appoint a public defender, mm -hmm. whether we're looking at whether a judgment debtor in uh, a regular civil case can be made to pay a debt, he or she is uh, afforded a, a certain amount of property that's exempt from process. It, yeah. it seems to me that we need to make some kind of inquiry into these issues uh, if they're going to withstand the constitutional scrutiny over, over time. I, I, I understand your position. I, I just, I think that that position has lost favor and I'm concerned if we, uh, if we take that course for Indiana, we're, we're, we're doing our citizens a disservice. Well, I don't think that the position has lost that much disfavor. There were questions about it from the U.S. Supreme Court uh, when this case was, was up there. I think Justice Thomas has articulated some concerns, but candidly, with all due respect to Justice Thomas, I think um, he's not looking at, at deep enough at the historical analysis. Uh, I think if you look to history, if you want to find guidance on how constitutionally, how historically these issues should be handled, there's plenty out there. There are so many cases about forfeiture and not taking into account uh, all of the things that Mr. Timms wants you to, to account for. It's instrumentality, full stop. But, but aren't those cases predominantly state cases that were not subject to uh, the Eighth Amendment scrutiny at the time? No, I think there are plenty of federal cases. I mean, think about, think about the Louisa Barbara, the, the ship that was forfeit for being one passenger over the limit. That's a federal case. There are all kinds of federal cases. In fact, um, you know, I think you, if you look at the treatises, the treatises tend to focus on a lot of federal statutes, especially around the time of the Civil War about how we're looking at, uh, at forfeitures. What's really interesting is if you look at the debates over um, uh, the Second Confiscation Act during the Civil War, there were all kinds of concerns about constitutionality of, of seizing the land of, of rebel soldiers. One of them was, not one of them, was about excessive fines. All of them had to do with due process, they had to do with other you know, sources of property rights. But you read those debates front to back, there is no discussion of the excessive fines clause. The, you know, those, those who were most concerned about it in, in, around the time of the, of the 14th Amendment were not even thinking in these terms. That's why we don't have any cases, state or federal, raising this issue of proportionality until about 1992. It's a purely modern device. It, there is no historical... But, but that modern device it. includes Austin, which says that what civil forfeitures are now subject to Eighth Amendment scrutiny. Sure, but of course, just, as Justice Scalia points out, there is no resolution of the test that applies. And in his view, the instrumentality test is the test that should that apply. that did not carry the weight. That didn't carry the day in Austin. Well, yeah, but nobody, nobody's test carried the day in Austin. Well, nobody rejected it, right? You had two justices saying this ought to be the test. The other right. justices just simply said, we're going to let everyone else sort out what the right. test ought, yeah. there was ought no, to be. Right, exactly. And Justice Scalia, I think, took it to be. This is, this is something that courts are going to have to look at. 
uh, in the wake of that, you've, you do have a decision from the Fourth Circuit in Chandler embracing the instrumentality test. So it certainly didn't see Austin as answering this issue. Um, Would it be fair to say that the majority of circuits that have looked at this proportionality issue have uh, have looked at this issue have applied a proportionality yes. test? Yes. And That's definitely the true. Fourth Circuit, and that, and even that case is maybe in question right now with regard to the Fourth Circuit. Well, the only question about it has come indicted. There's never been an overruling of it. It is the position. It is the legal standard of the Fourth Circuit. If you look at the the holdings. So of the, the cases. argument you're making today is with the vast is a very very much a vast minority position with regard to in the circuits right now. Yes. Yes, I think that's definitely true. Yes. Well, I, I, oh, I did want to point out um, the back to, to the, what the, where the trial court sort of uh, went wrong in our view. Not only with respect to the, cri the which crimes uh, the court was willing to look at, but also at this issue of the uh, maximum ten thousand dollar fine, which we think is uh, uninstructive about the seriousness of this crime. Ten thousand dollars, of course, is the fine for all felonies, whether it's. Uh, possessing a, a syringe with intent to, to use drugs or whether it's murder. So it doesn't really tell us anything. Uh, also, $10,000 uh, when that cap was enacted back in the 1970s was worth about $40,000 today. So um, I don't think it's really, uh, if it tells us anything, it tells us back in the, in the 70s there certainly was uh, a comparable valuation. How many times is a $10,000 fine imposed? And Far fewer. How many times is a ten thousand dollar fine ever collected? Yeah. I, I, look, I, I don't know the answer. I think the more instructive thing is look at the criminal sentencing, uh, which this this forfeiture is nowhere near those outer boundaries. Did, did you get to make your instrumentality argument uh, uninterrupted? I think I've made the points yeah. I came to make. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Gitch. Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. If the court chooses to reach the merits of the state's appeal, the judgment below should be affirmed. And before turning to the, the crux of what I think is the party's dispute, the proportionality standard, uh, I'll spend a moment, if I may, on the alternative basis for affirmance. Because even under the state's instrumentality theory, property cannot constitutionally be forfeited if it is merely incidentally linked to the predicate crime. And here, Mr. Timms's vehicle was only incidentally linked to what the state previously conceded is the sole basis on which it is seeking forfeiture, the one controlled by that Mr. Timms drove to. Now, to be sure, the state's evolving argument has changed, and they're arguing that his car should be understood as instrumental to other wrongdoing, uh, to Mr. Timms's struggles with addiction more generally. But not only does the record have little to say on that point, but the state's argument fundamentally misunderstands the proper question. Because the question is not whether Mr. Timms ever did anything bad in his car. The instrumentality question is whether the car was instrumental to the predicate offense that the state has chosen as its basis for forfeiture. Here, the state conceded at 29 minutes and 20 seconds into the first argument that the sole basis for forfeiture here was the one controlled by Mr. Timms's vehicle was linked at most incidentally to that transaction, and I have not heard the state seriously argue otherwise. And that is reason enough to affirm. It was argued otherwise at the trial level. 
So, Your Honor, I think there was some ambiguity at the trial level about what the basis for the state's forfeiture action was, and that follows in part from the state's practice not to include operative facts in their complaint. But I don't think the state should be able to benefit from trial-level ambiguity since they clarified that ambiguity the last time they were here. Is there any question from Judge Todd's order that he thought that this vehicle was an instrumentality? Because I sure didn't think he had any question about that. I thought he was he struggled solely with the proportionality question. So I don't know that Judge Todd uh, you know, bifurcated the instrumentality inquiry. He certainly made findings that Mr. Timms drove a lot of miles to feed his heroin habit. Um, but at the end of the day, even accepting the state's you know, most damning view of the record, the most that they can say is this. Mr. Timms was a heroin addict, and he bought heroin in Richmond because that's where he knew how to get heroin. And like most people with homes, he drove home afterwards. And that does not an instrumentality make. And even if the court disagrees with us on the instrumentality question, uh, the lower courts were absolutely correct to hold that even if there were a sufficient link between property and crime, this forfeiture is grossly disproportional, and for that reason, too, invalid. And setting aside for the moment the state's most radical argument that there should be no proportionality standard at all, I think the party's main ground of dispute is what should the proportionality analysis look to. But, you know, back to the related criminal, I mean, Bajapajian pretty clearly stated that the um, related criminal conduct is relevant. So you can't ignore the fact that he put 95% of the miles on his car somewhat using or dealing heroin. To be sure, Your Honor, uh, the, the Supreme Court and Bajikajian looked to whether the predicate crime was part of a broader criminal enterprise, but critically, they did it as part of the broader proportionality analysis when they're trying to evaluate the defendant's personal culpability. Uh, the question's entirely different if we're looking at the threshold question of was this property instrumental uh, to the crime on which the state has decided to seek forfeiture? And here, it, it's not. Of course, of course, the state's view is it's not a threshold question. It's the only question. Well, th th that's correct, Your Honor. And, and as we point out in our briefing, that is squarely at odds with at least eight federal courts of appeal and many state high courts. So if the state is going to ask this court to go where almost no court has gone before, I think they need to point to more than law office history. And as we point out in our response brief, the history, in fact, is far from clear. Uh, Professor Kevin Arlick's recent article, uh, forthcoming in the Columbia Law Review, points out that the state's view of history is, in fact, incomplete. So whatever burden the state might need to carry to persuade this court to break with eight federal circuits and any number of other state courts, I don't think the state has met it here. You, you and you would, you've got different factors that we're, I'm sure we're going to hear about, but one is that the court should look at the gravity of the harm, correct? So our, our submission is, is is simple. The proportionality inquiry should look to the specific defendant's okay. culpability. But what about the generalized? Should the courts also look at the generalized gravity of the harm? No, Your Honor. Uh, it should play little, if any, role in the proportionality. Well, I mean, the legislature's decided, you know, we're, it's no secret we're in the middle of a, a crisis, an epidemic, with regard to, and we have a number of people, and I get alerts every week for people dying in any county with regard to whether fentanyl and heroin, or now I'm seeing methamphetamine and cocaine. So the legislature, down the hallway, they came up and said, listen, if you use this entity for a car, given the outcome that we have a number of people dying and overdoses and we're trying to get Narcan out in all our communities, that that generalized gravity, uh, generalized level of harm is also a consideration. But you're saying no, that should never be looked at, just the specific harm in this case, which was affected was a controlled by. And I'm struggling with that. So we're not challenging the legislature's authority to pass a forfeiture statute. We're simply explaining that 
under the excessive fines clause, it's the role of the court to, to police the margins of those forfeitures. And when uh, the forfeiture applies to someone whose culpability is relatively minor, the main teaching of Bajikagian is that we look to the defendant's specific culpability to make sure they aren't treated like a drug kingpin, for but example. What about the objective? I mean, when Judge Todd's sitting in, in Wayne County looking at this, and we just had 15 overdoses based on tainted um, heroin in your county. I mean, can they look past? Can they? You're, you're saying the test should only be the particular harm, not the. And I'm, I'm reading a lot of the cases saying that the generalized harm is also a consideration of the general harm um, in a proportionality analysis. So I think the fact that there are far worse drug offenders out there actually cuts decisively in our favor rather than cutting against Mr. Timms because it demonstrates that relative to other potential violators of the statute, Mr. Timms's culpability is relatively low, and that's almost a direct quote. <laughs> from the Bajikagian majority's analysis of Hoset Bajikagian's culpability. Because the court in Bajikagian did not look to the, the generalized harm of violating the federal reporting statute writ large, which might include drug kingpins or money launderers or tax evaders. Rather, the court looked to the specific harm that Hoset Bajikagian had committed. And rather than attributing to Hoset Bajikagian the culpability of a theoretical drug offender, for example, or a theoretical uh, tax evader, uh, the court at footnote 14 looked at Mr. Bajikagian's harm relative to those other potential violators of the statute. So in that sense, the question under the excessive fines clause is absolutely individualized and fact-specific and, and, and record-intensive. And as I understand the state's position, they don't dispute that Mr. Timms's personal culpability is relatively low. There's no dispute that he was a first-time offender. There's no dispute that he sold drugs only at the behest of law enforcement. There's no dispute that he was an addict. And there's no dispute that given his financial circumstances, taking his means of transportation is an unusually harsh economic sanction. Uh, the state disputes none of that. Rather, their position is that it doesn't matter because we'll saddle any person connected to illicit drug use with, in the state's words, the general societal harm of illicit drug use nationwide. So as my friend Mr. Fisher said, uh, they would treat under the excessive fines clause Pablo Escobar the same way they would treat Tyson Timms. And the main teaching from the Supreme Court and Bajikagian is that we don't treat low-level offenders like Pablo Escobar or like the hypothetical drug kingpin or like the hypothetical money launderer. By contrast, of course, the state's you know, macro-level view of societal harm um, mirrors the dissenting opinion in Bajikagian. Because in Justice Kennedy's dissent, uh, he looked not to Mr. Bajikagian's specific culpability, but he approved a blanket punishment based on hypothetical harms caused by drug kingpins and tax evaders and money launderers. But you seem to be, but you seem to be treating Mr. Timms differently based on the value of the car he was driving. If all the facts were the same, but his car was only worth five or ten thousand dollars, we're not making this this economic proportionality argument, are we? Oh, I, I disagree, Justice Massa. I think in that hypothetical situation, the car still should not be subject to forfeiture under the threshold instrumentality inquiry. Uh, but even if we were examining that under the proportionality standard, the fact that we're talking about really a, a, a lifeline, an almost uniquely valuable piece of property, regardless of the, the economic value, means that these are forfeitures that should be taken exceptionally seriously. And here, the fact that his car happens also to be worth a lot of money only confirms that the forfeiture here is disproportional. Well, counsel, in the, the, the Supreme Court has told us that the grossly uh, disproportional standard applies both to excessive fines and to cruel and unusual punishment. And I'd, I'd like you to, if you would, explain to us, if you would, how we should understand what that 
concept means for purposes of ex excessive fines, in which the, the case law is quite limited from SCOTUS. But it's, it's, there's far more guidance that we get from the Supreme Court when it comes to cruel and unusual punishment. What should we, what should we take from that? So the short answer is, is not much, Justice Slaughter. And well, I, why I, is that? <laughs> so because while it is certainly true that the majority in Bajikagian drew on proportionality principles developed in the context of the cruel and unusual punishment clause. The proportionality standard that the court applied in Bajikagian is far more rigorous, far more individualized, and far more fact-intensive. And indeed, Justice Kennedy's dissent made that point explicitly in section three of his dissenting opinion, where he drew on what he viewed as an incongruity between the you know, traditionally highly deferential review that's applied to prison terms uh, under the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause and the far more rigorous, far more individualized proportionality review that the majority was applying in Bajikagian. Now, does it matter in Bajikagian that, the, uh, that, the, that it was a criminal in rem forfeiture rather than a I'm sorry, in, in personam rather than an in rem forfeiture? Well, uh, no, Your Honor. I think the, the Supreme Court was fairly clear that the same gross disproportionality analysis would apply across the in personam in rem divide, and that, in large part, is why so many federal and state courts have applied Bajikagian's standard to in rem forfeitures. Um, but back to my point, if I, can, if I can finish answering your question about this you know, potential disparity between the cruel and unusual punishment clause versus the excessive fines clause, this is a phenomenon that you know, many academic commentators have, have commented on, from uh, Professor Pam Carlin at Stanford to Barry Johnson in, in Oklahoma. And I think in concrete terms, that potential disparity is borne out by many of the cases that the state cites. And I'll point you to one example, which is the Taylor case from, from this court, which involved a cruel and unusual punishment challenge to a 32-year prison sentence that was imposed on a recidivist who'd stolen $50 worth of spark plugs. Now, this court entertained the federal proportionality challenge to that 32-year prison sentence, but the court dispatched it in little more than a sentence. This court said that for anything short of life imprisonment, the Eighth Amendment, quote, does not uh, require an intensive proportionality review. And whether or not that is correct as a matter of cruel and unusual punishment law, that is self-evidently different from the individualized and fact-specific approach that the court in Bajikajian used. So to the extent there is a, a mismatch between how the courts evaluate proportionality when it comes to imprisonment versus how they evaluate proportionality when it comes to economic sanctions, any such mismatch is a product of current U.S. Supreme Court precedent. Let me finish your, your sentence. Okay. I apologize. I'm, I'm um, we're very grateful for the U.S. Supreme Court's assist in this case. So. Um, I'm, let's put instrumentality to side for just a moment and talk about uh, uh, factors uh, in determining this gross proportionality or not that, that you believe you and the state may have um, an agreement if, we, if, we, uh, if that's where we land. And, and can you identify, in addition, some, some factors that you think uh, there's no argument if we're going down this road and some factors that uh, um, the state wants us to consider, including that you don't, and, and vice versa. I'm, 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 I'm a Ford guy, but I want guidance for our trial judges on, on how they go forward. And, and so it seems to me, at least at this point, we're looking at some sort of guidance that's, that's going to give our trial courts an opportunity to let both sides at one of these proceedings say why it is and why it isn't. So, so what's in by, by, you think, consensus, and, and what are the hot spots? 
factors. So, so reluctantly, I don't see much common ground when it comes to the. Portion. I was hoping you'd say something different. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but that, that I think I'm is sorry. the truthful answer, um, because at the end of the day, our position is that the proportionality inquiry is fact specific, and it, it is individualized to the defendant. And the state, as I understand their argument, doesn't dispute anything about our account of the factual record. They don't dispute anything about our characterization of Mr. Timms's culpability, but they say that an individualized assessment doesn't matter because we could put Mr. Timms in jail for the rest of his life. So why is he complaining that we're taking his car? And that's just not the proportionality standard that the court in Bajikajian applied. And if it were, then Hoseb Bajikajian would have lost too, because at the end of the day, he was a federal felon. So if the state's argument is that the test is whether we can put someone in jail for 30 years over spark plugs, then presumably the, constitutionally, the federal government could have put Hoseb Bajikajian in jail for 30 years for violating a federal felony statute, but they didn't. And the reason is that the majority in Bajikajian looked at the individualized culpability of Hoseb Bajikajian and looked at the harm that he caused, not that the harm that drug kingpins and money launderers caused. And they determined that he fell on the low end of the spectrum for people who were caught up in this far broader uh, criminal statute. Likewise here, as the state conceded the last time it was in this room, Mr. Timms is not the worst offender when it comes to the broader class of drug offenders. And that is a, if not a dispositive factor in the Bajikajian decision, it's at least a factor that the Supreme Court in Bajikajian relied on heavily. And I want to, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, I think it's important in the limited time and the importance of this that Mr. Timms really is, um, he's, he's represented a lot of folks that would find themselves in this situation and that uh, he's, you know, he's involved in, in drug trafficking to an extent. He's not Pablo Escobar and most people that sit in front of a trial court judge in Indiana or any state in the United States aren't Pablo Escobar. Uh, he's got himself in legal trouble at a time when our state, like many states, is going through criminal justice reform, and we're looking at folks and their problems differently than judges did 20 or 25 years ago. We're, we're trying to consider things uh, like to the extent to which he's, he's rehabilitated himself, to the, the, the economic hardship that something like this might impose on him, and it, it is difficult uh, when, when you're, you're speaking to us in these extremes. Uh, and uh, what, what do we do? What, what do we do with, uh, with someone who is, um, my first blush when I'm looking at the case, dealing heroin, maybe one time, but going back and forth across county lines over a period of five months and putting 15,000 plus miles in this vehicle uh, to, to purchase heroin. And it's a luxury vehicle. Uh, it's not a Bugatti, but uh, in, in Grant County, Indiana, it's, it's, it stands out when you're driving a Land Rover. Uh, 25 years ago, it, it would have been shocking to, to have this situation um, come uh, to us as it did, that, that this, is, this is grossly disproportionate. It's not now. And, and so help us articulate that test. How, how do we, how, what's a judge to do? What, so, so I think the fact-specific and individualized nature of the standard that we're proposing, that we're drawing from the Supreme Court in Bajikajian, is a virtue, not a vice, because it gives trial courts the, the flexibility to do what the Supreme Court did in Bajikajian, namely to consider the totality of the circumstances and to evaluate the specific defendant's culpability rather than slot them into a, a box that might be fit for Pablo Escobar but not for Tyson Timms. And I'll contrast that, of course, with the state's position, which I think is, is exceptionally extreme. Because on the state's view, they can, of course, take the Bugatti that speeds, but they can take anything from any person 
who has any connection to illicit drug use. So and you would accept the totality of the circumstances type test? Well, yes, Your Honor, and if I can clarify a little bit, what we're talking about. I mean, I, mean, I, I would like you to articulate one, two, three, four, five bullet points, checkpoints, something, because that's what we need to consider however we decide to do this. So, so Justice David, I don't think I can do that, and let me explain why. Because as the Tenth Circuit said in a case we cited in our opening brief, there is no strict formula, there's no one-size-fits-all test when it comes to evaluating excessiveness. So that gets back to totality, that you say, no, that's not exactly what my... Well, no, no I, I think it is absolutely a totality of the circumstances analysis, but the totality doesn't include hypothesizing you know, worst-case scenario drug offenders. It's the totality of the circumstances with respect to what Mr. Timms did. And here, the state doesn't dispute that what he did was relatively... Totality list limited to the circumstances of a particularized defendant? Yes, I think that's entirely consistent with the Supreme Court's teaching of Bajikadzian. And it's also consistent with, for example, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court decision, the Utah Supreme Court decision, and any number of, of other decisions. Um, so what he or she was charged with, or what they weren't charged with, uh, the type of vehicle, would, would that be included in this totality? I mean, potentially, Your Honor, yes. Uh, again, I don't know that the type of vehicle would... So the 15,000 miles would be relevant. Um, driving to Richmond to, to feed a habit would be relevant. To be sure, Your Honor, we're certainly not arguing that when it comes to the proportionality inquiry, that the court has to put its blinkers on and not look at whether Mr. Timms's predicate offense was part of a broader criminal enterprise. Here, though, it, it wasn't part of a broader criminal enterprise. There's been a lot of tests or factors, at least, and we're trying to kind of, trying to get you to hone in and you're trying not to, but but there have been, we've looked at a lot of tests. Like Pennsylvania had, I mean, you looked, they looked at other illegal activity, the maximum penalty, the regularity of criminal conduct, the actual harm, the culpability, there's others. So we'll, when you say totality, you know, there will be buckets, at least, or at least factors or range of things for some guidance, of course. It's kind of hard to go in and say it's just totality. Well, you know, you're very much, or some of the Miki uh, briefs talked about, you need to look at the financial hardship on the defendant. So we're looking for some examples. So other crimes, other criminal activity can, um, can come in. The fact that he used it with regard to supporting his habit, the... Maximum, does the maximum penalty the possible crime come in? Should so uh, it, it ever be looked at? Yes, go ahead. Uh, um, so so I, on the maximum penalty point, I don't think that that bears a whole lot of weight. And indeed, even in Bajikajian, the Supreme Court kind of gave the back of its hands at the $250,000 maximum penalty. But in response to perhaps your unease with you know the totality of the circumstances test that we're advocating for, in that sense, it's not all that different from other similar tests we see under other constitutional provisions. For example, under the Fourth Amendment, there's not a one, two, three factor test in determining the reasonableness of a search. And likewise here, the, the teaching of the Supreme Court uh, is that there should not be a one-size-fits-all test for determining the excessive. Well, I understand that, but, but I think my, my interpretation is we don't have, it shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all, but we're not going to tell you what the test should be. So we're, we're looking, and I understand your position is, I think, under, under um, the totality, however you want to phrase the totality, uh, Justice David, my client prevails. So what I'm asking you is the totality test that you seem to be suggesting, what, if anything, is out of that? Uh, you want economic hardship in it. Uh, you do not want the uh, maximum penalty consideration, you, correct? That's, in other that's words, correct. 
my, my client's charged with a misdemeanor versus, versus a more serious offense, your position is that's not a fair consideration to put in the totality. So I'm, I'm just trying to ask you what's in and what's out so sure. I can ask opposing counsel, even assuming he doesn't like that test, what well, well, sure. and, and I don't want to make a circular argument here, but, but our position is that we, we look to the culpability of the specific offender, and there are certain data points we can look to. And in a case like this one, we have the benefit of a separate criminal case. So we can look to what the judge in the criminal court viewed as Mr. Timms's culpability. And she determined, with the state's consent, uh, that his culpability was so low that he merited no jail time and zero dollars in fines. Um, but, but if I can try to perhaps center the court more closely on the question that's actually before it, there's not any demand for this court to announce a comprehensive, one-size-fits-all proportionality standard. Rather, it's enough uh, to determine that the state's arguments for reversal are wrong. And here, the state's arguments for reversal are wrong, because the state isn't proposing its own nuanced totality of the circumstances argument. They're arguing that Judge Todd should be reversed because, one, we don't look at proportionality at all, or two, if we do, we look at it through a lens under which the government always wins. And Whatever difficulties there might be at the margins in defining difficult cases or in you know, hashing out the specifics of a test, what the state's arguing for today is radical and finds little to no support in any case law nationwide. And that is all that this court has to say. And as a more practical matter, moreover, a forfeiture like this one is an exceptionally harsh economic sanction, and I haven't heard the state argue otherwise, and particularly for someone in Mr. Timms's circumstances, a low-income recovery addict. Your car is your lifeline, regardless of its value. It's how you get to treatment. It's how you hold down a job. It's how you reintegrate into society. So particularly in these circumstances, as Judge Todd saw in Grant County and as the Court of Appeals saw too, forfeiting his vehicle is excessive. And the rule that the state argues for today would give it the same power to do the same thing and more to every recovering addict and to every low-level offender across the state of Indiana. Can I at least ask you to specify on that point, what evidence in the record can you point me to that Judge Todd relied upon to make a finding that this was economically devastating to Mr. Timms? Because I, I didn't find that his findings. I've read this transcript several times. I don't see that. And if I'm wrong, I want to know. But if I'm not wrong, that's something that I would like to at least consider as a point uh, of instruction that we could give to trial court judges, many of whom will, will struggle with that very issue. Sure. So you're correct, Justice Goff, that there was uh, little to nothing in the transcript, and uh, Judge Todd did not make any factual findings on that point. But I'll refer you to volume two of the appellee's appendix, which incorporated the pre-sentence report from Mr. Tim's uh, criminal case. and. The reason that's part of the record is because the state asked Judge Todd to take judicial notice of the criminal case. So I've yet to hear the state dispute that that information is part of the record. Uh, the state does not dispute that Mr. Timms is poor or that seizing his most valuable assets, seizing his means of transportation is an exceptionally punitive economic sanction. The state just says that the excessive clause either doesn't apply here or that it lets us take everything from anyone who has been addicted to drugs. And the teaching of Bajikajian is that that kind of bright line rule, even under the state's evolving view of the excessive fines clause, that that bright line rule uh, is not sufficient under the Eighth Amendment. And for that reason, above all, the judgment below should be affirmed. I'm happy to answer any questions the court may have. Should we make the same type of inquiry that we make uh, when we're determining whether or not someone is entitled to indigent counsel? 
So on the question of you know, economic hardship, I think there are certainly overlaps that the courts could apply, and the ACLU and other groups' amicus brief you know, points to examples like the indigency determination. Yes. States typically have schedules of property that they find are exempt from creditors in civil proceedings. Uh, should, should an inquiry like that have any bearing or, or, or bear in a, a judge's mind when, when she or he is making a determination like this? Potentially, uh, Justice Goff, and I believe that at least the lower courts in Indiana have said that that kind of homestead exemption does not apply to civil interim forfeitures, but I think it's instructive in that the legislature has determined that there are certain types of property that are so vital to just the necessity of daily life that we don't want to strip people of them, particularly when they're down on their luck. You would agree that once the, the state has shown that it was an instrumentality, the burden sort of shifts over to the um, owner of the vehicle to show that it's constitution that, that it's accessible and constitutionally infirm, correct? So the consensus among courts is that once the state meets the burden of showing an instrumentality under the excessive fines clause, not just the statute, that it's the owner's burden to show by, by merely a preponderance of the evidence that the forfeiture was grossed. Okay, court said that, it by a, that it's by a preponderance of evidence? Yes, Your Honor. Um, most courts have. And as a statutory For, matter. As far as the burden that, that go, goes back to the defendant yes. or the owner of the car. Yes. And I'd refer the court to 18 U.S.C. 983G, where Congress codified that preponderance of the evidence standard for property owners proceeding in federal court. So that's a fairly well-settled law, as I understand it. Mr. Gedge, suppose we agree with you and um, conclude that the forfeiture here was unlawful, impermissibly excessive. Is, is Mr. Timms's only remedy to get the vehicle back, or would the state be on the hook for any uh, diminution in value while it possessed the property over the last however many years? Uh, so I don't know. Um, his goal right now is to get the is car Is the only back. relief you're seeking is the vehicle's return? Well, in, in this case, certainly, and, and I don't know whether there is a provision in Indiana's tort claim statute that might provide for it. Um, but for purposes of this case, at least, he wants the car back, as Judge Todd Regardless said. of what condition it's in? Well, yes. And, and if, if the state doesn't have it anymore, for example, or if they've trashed it, then there may be other remedies. Um, but I, I'm not sure right now what they would be. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Professor Rebuttal. I just want to make a few points on rebuttal. First of all, I want the court to bear in mind that um, whether a, uh, an instrumentality of crime uh, can be subject to forfeiture is not really a matter of kind of the optimal sentence for a given uh, criminal defendant. This is not a situation where we're looking or we expect a trial court to look um, at all of these circumstances and say, well, under, the, you know, under these circumstances, this is sort of the optimal outcome. This is a constitutional case. Uh, this is about whether the statute, as applied in this circumstance, is unconstitutional. And that requires a pretty significant, an extreme outlying case, as this court has recognized in the sentencing cases. Gross disproportionality is a, is a really, really difficult standard for uh, somebody whose property has been forfeited to be able to meet. Um, I think with respect to, to Bajikaji, I think there are a couple of points uh, to, to focus the court on there. One is the court did look at what, exactly what we think, assuming a proportionality test applies, uh, should be a consideration, which is what criminal punishment was available. And there, uh, the, the maximum punishment under the sentencing guidelines was uh, five months in prison and a $5,000 fine versus a $350,000 forfeiture. 
that was, I think, more instructive than anything else uh, that comes out of Bajikaji. And insofar as Bajikajian talked about in-rem forfeitures in relation to in-personum forfeitures, it spent an awful lot of time describing how historically in-rem forfeitures were different and went about uh, describing, notwithstanding Austin, that they typically were not understood to be punishment. And when it arrived finally at the analysis of the facts in that case, it said, but you know what? This is not an in-rem forfeiture. This is an in-personum forfeiture. That history does not apply. So if anything, Bajikajian reinforces the exact distinctions that we're, we're making here today. Uh, so I don't think you can look at Bajikajian and say, what goes for in personam goes for in rem. Do you agree with Mr. Gedge's response to my question about grossly disproportional, same words for purposes of cruel and unusual punishment really mean very different things for purposes of the excessive fines clause? No, I think, I think we're, our position is those are, are the same tests. And you, get, you can, I think, use the sentencing cases uh, for uh, purposes of trying to analyze whether something is grossly disproportionate. You know, I think it's a very, it's a fairly straightforward inquiry. If, if 20 years in this situation wouldn't have been grossly disproportionate, I don't see how a $40,000 uh, forfeiture would be. Is there any authority for your, for that, for your, your view on that? Well, I think, I, I think Bajikajian. He says, well, he says that that's, case stands for precisely the opposite. Well, no, I, I think Bajikajian is, expressly incorporates uh, Solemn and the other uh, sentencing uh, uh, cases that uh, look at cruel and unusual punishment, and it's, I think, fairly straightforwardly incorporating that same test. It certainly um, invokes, the sa um, invokes the same words. The yeah. question is whether it applied it in a very different way. Well, no, I don't, I, I, I don't think you can look at Bajikajian and say it applied it in a different way. I think you can look at Bajikajian and say, well, here's the, you know, here's the one uh, sort of paper crime that was, that was committed, and, and the, the criminal consequence would have been so minimal uh, that the in, that the forfeiture consequence uh, really uh, is, is out of proportion to that. And if that's the inquiry, then I think the inquiry here is, you know, what is a $40,000 Land Rover versus a potential 20-year sentence? There's nothing further. Thank you. General, thank you, Solicitor General. Well, counsel, you know, just a wonderful job in your briefing and your arguments today. And Uniki, we asked for your briefs and we appreciate them. Um, we appreciate the time that went into it. So we will be discussing the case. Uh, we're going to leave for a minute, clear the courtroom, and then we're going to just have an informal conversation with the interns and law students that are here. So that's it. Thank you. All right.